Hello and welcome back to the Thundersticks Podcast. I am your host, Ben Kreider, and today we are on day three of five talking about everybody on the Thunder roster that is active and giving them my final grades on the season. So today we are talking small forward. We got four guys I'm going to be hammering down on. Lou Dort, Isaiah Roby, Gabrielle Deck, and Josh Hall. I know with Isaiah Roby, you could say, yeah, he's a power forward center. That's probably where he played more, but it's going to make a lot more sense come tomorrow's episode. I can assure you of that one. So just starting things out with Lou Dort, I'm going to be talking about just him overall. I think the expectation when the season started out was he was going to be a defensive specialist. That was for sure. We knew last year in the playoffs when going against James Harden, clamping him up wire to wire, he could not have any sort of breathing room against him. And he was just blanketed. We knew that he was going to retain that defensive level. Like that's not going to go away from him. He did it in the G League last year. The jump was seamless. He had that crazy like game-saving dive with like Shabazz Napier against the Timberwolves. Wild. He just kept trending upwards. So we knew entering this year he'd be a great defender, probably one of the best on our team. But offensively, there was still a lot of room to talk about because you can be great defensively, but you know, if you don't have a formidable jumper or free throw, it's a serious problem. You just need to look back at Andre Roberson. You know, five years ago, all the Houston Rockets had to do was just hack him, take him to the free throw line, and they were able to win the playoff series whenever Russell Westbrook was pretty much carrying the team that year. So you need to be able to shoot the basketball, number one, but also just being a two-way threat is so important in the league. And for the Thunder right now, if they want to seriously contend, they need to have, if someone's going to be in that starting lineup, they need to be great at defense, just like Lou Dort is. But if you're great at defense, you need to supplement it with a little bit of offense. Now, you don't need to be a star per se, but just make it palatable because, you know, with some of these guys that the Thunder have brought in year after year solely for defensive purposes, they give you one side of the ball. But, you know, if they have a bad defensive night, they are pretty much unplayable. So it's a serious issue. You need to be able to kind of have two sides to your game and Lou Dort was able to blossom that in this season so just starting out with I guess his offensive improvements look last year he didn't play a lot but he he wasn't amazing at shooting the three ball he shot 29.7 percent on just around three attempts per game that's all right that is all right and in the bubble he was ice cold until game seven against the Houston Rockets. It was either six for six or seven of seven, but he could not miss a three-pointer. Actually, I take it back. It was seven of 14 he shot in that game seven game, I believe. But the point was, he was the best player on the court that night. On the Thunder team, easily. 30 points. He led that team. Without him, that that series wouldn't have went past five games, truthfully, because... Chris Paul's great. SGA's great. Schroeder, Gallo, Adams, whoever you want to talk about, they're all great players, but you wouldn't have found anybody on that roster who could have guarded James Harden the way Dort did because James Harden is a straight-up foul magnet. He still was that against Lou Dort, but, you know, if there wasn't a foul, 
he was just draped all over, and he couldn't make a shot for his life. Against anybody else, he would have been shooting above 50%, and that series would have been over with. They would have carried on James Harden, Russell Westbrook, on to the next one, trying to take down, I guess, the Lakers. Yeah, that was their second round matchup. But anyways, you know, he, he went over, and immediately he was making an impact from three. And the preseason for him was... A bit of a fluke because I remember he shot like one of seven, I believe, from downtown. And this is just my recollection of things. I might be off a bit, but I remember he wasn't shooting above like 20% from downtown in the preseason. And that would seem like a cautionary red flag, but the deal was every single shot, the defense was actually not really guarding him that much uh, for starters. But the important part was regardless he would take the ball, immediately square his feet, and jack up the three. It doesn't go in, that's fine. It's a, it's called the preseason for a reason. It was pretty much just training camp for them right now. So to see him already have confidence in his shot, even when the ball was not going in the hoop, meant more than him shooting two for two and him having to second guess himself for five seconds. So him just immediately taking it, that was a big plus, and as the season started progressing this season, he became a really good sharpshooter for the team. So overall, he attempted 6.3 threes a game, and that very well could be the most that was attempted on the team this year, because SGA only took, yeah, he only took um, 4.9. Lou Dort led the Thunder in three-pointers this season, and out of his 12.3 attempts, 6.3, yeah, that is above 50% of his shots that he's taking from the perimeter. That is a breakthrough that nobody would have predicted entering this regular season. You could have said, yeah, he could turn into a pretty good three-point shooter, but you wouldn't think that shot chart would be the way it is. It's kind of wacky when you break it down, but with those threes, he got as many reps in as the whole entire roster he was taking so many shots by the end of the season it was known he could shoot the basketball so him taking all those jumpers was amazing and he shot 34.3 percent from downtown and this was a segment that I actually had on my over and unders when I was talking with Nick I think it was in December, like right before the season started. And I talked about it in my point guard episode where I talked about SGA and Ty Jerome. But I talked about how the over and unders, I had like 23, 5, and 5, over and under. For Lou Dort, I had it on 34% from three. And in retrospect, I feel like that's kind of a gigantic bar to set. Like 32 would have been probably the smooth spot for him. Because 34 is a really good shooting average. And given the preseason, it didn't look like he'd be shooting 34% overall, right? So I took the under. Nick took the under. I think it was like 30 to 32. Well, 34.3% is serious for him. And taking that jump, what, a 5% jump over the course of a year is, it's huge. It's huge. And when you're talking a 30% three-point shooter, that's not someone that you need to really close out on. You'll let them shoot it. Like, Hamadou Diallo, for example, he was shooting around 28-29%. You change that to a 34-35% three-point shooter, you're going to be guarding him, and you're going to be, 
you know, getting killed whenever you decide not to, right? And I think Lou Dort has taken that step. And there are some games still in this season, even in the back end, where he could not buy a bucket from downtown. He'd shoot two for eight from three, one of seven, one of six, just did not fall his way. But then there were other games where he just bounced right back in the next one and be able to shoot three of four, like five of six. I, I don't know the numbers, but he would be really effective. And with that, it was able to turn his game into one that was solely based on driving with not a lot of kind of finesse getting in there to a three-point shot that makes defenders stay up on him, but not entirely play close. You know, they're not playing tight. They're not per se sagging, but they're given a decent distance to where they feel like they can close out if he takes a jumper. But if he wants to go put the pedal to the metal and try to penetrate, he has a very good shot at it because there is room for him to kind of orchestrate with. And it especially worked out that way when he was working in the corners this year. So when he got the basketball in the corners and these people would kind of just stay in no man's land, not a good position to be in, Lou Dort, he could pump fake, he could sidestep, and then he just go right at them. You have to understand that Lou Dort overall, he's listed as 215 pounds on basketball reference. There's no way on earth this guy's 215 pounds because look at his build. This guy is the most muscular 6'3 player I've ever seen, at least on the Thunder. I don't know who else would be in that conversation, especially at 215, but this guy is so burly and he's able to just use that upper body to strength to almost will his way inside. So he'll get that first step initially, and then he just has to use his strength, keep his defender right behind him, and keep just chugging along until he gets to the rack. And hey, he even had sidestep moves that he incorporated later on into the season. And he picked up fouls and made layups through contact. Overall this season, he ended up attempting one point or actually excuse me that was in rookie season he averaged 3.2 free throws a game that's a gigantic difference you were talking about and there were even games this year where he got into the 8 10 even 13 attempts from the foul line his largest one was 13 on the year so he went from really not being a guy you could look towards for a free throw to yeah he was getting foul calls not just you know, good calls on the defensive side, because as a guy going for charges, he's the best in the league, hands down, but also when he's charging in, trying to go up for layups, so he started getting those calls swinging his way, he had the threes dropping, and then to top it all off, he became a three-level scorer in his pull-up jumper, now, I'm not going to depend on Lou Dort to be a mid-range guy, like, I think he's more of inside or outside, I don't think there's much of a medium with him, but he does still have that tendency to where you can rely on him if he's wide open when it's like a 15 to 18 foot jump shot. But the big deal though is how he has kind of gelled to where when you give him the basketball, because he's not taking the ball up the court, that is a certainty. But if you put him in the wing, he becomes elite because he can shoot the basketball, he can drive in, and he can even dish out at times if he feels the need to. He ended up averaging 1.7 assists this season feel like a good amount of them probably came off of driving dishes and if not that just playing hot potato after a drive and dish overall though I think the biggest deal in Lou Dort's game is how his catch and shoot just came into fruition this year 
Lou Dort attempted 5.1 of those, I think 6.1 or 6.3 threes off the catch and shoot. He was an off-ball guy. He didn't need the ball in his hands, you know, taking it up to be deadly. But he got there and he ended up shooting 36.9% on those attempts. That is spectacular by comparison to what we have seen. If you want to look towards other guys, someone who was known as a pick and pop guy, really not known for his post game or interior game in his 28 times he suited up in a Thunder jersey, Al Horford. He was behind Lou Dort in this category. He shot 36.6 and Mike Muscala, another guy who is known for being a pick and pop player. This is someone that was expected to be traded at the deadline just because of how he operated in a pick and pop. He also shot worse on catch and shoots than Lou Dort. Now, it's like by 0.5%, but being in a class with Al Horford and Mike Muscala, that's not just some Joe Blow who picked up a basketball yesterday. That is someone who has been working towards their shot, and it's no doubt that's where he put all of his marbles in when it came down to training, and it worked out big time because now he's one of the more special two-way players in the league, and he's only what, 22 years old now? He turned 22 two months ago. So he has so much more potential that can be grasped. It is ridiculous. In a trade value situation, I have heard people want to package Dort and Baisley and like pick five to go from two to one. Baisley, there, there's an understanding for that. Lou Dort, I think, is a lot more valuable than what people might some people might go after and it's because of that two-way gig when Kenrich Williams was on the block you needed a first round pick a guy like Robert Covington certified 3 and D wing he needed two unprotected first to get pride away Lou Dort would have to do that for me and I understand if you want to take a jump and you are really sold on Kate Cunningham that might be a string but I don't understand it I feel like he would be not untouchable per se, but you need to not be giving up really anything else. You know, if there is a scenario where you can move up, if like the Warriors by some grace of the world got the number one pick, number one, they should probably take Kate Cunningham, right? Let's say number two to make it interesting. But if they're up there and they, you know, you got Jalen Green on the board, there's Evan Mobley, they would probably want Evan Mobley. He'd fit a lot better than Wiseman. But if they want to make a playoff push because Clay would be back, someone like a Lou Dort would make perfect sense for them. And he's already 22. So you could get like a six or seven, five, six or seven. You could attach, you know, five, Dort, and maybe some other sweetener, okay? But even at that, I feel like Dort is better than whoever you'd take at five this year. At least right now, that is how I feel about it. It can change, but I think Lou Dort is not a dude. You just sweeten a deal with already attached with a top five pick that you know has the potential to also be a star so I don't know I think in trade situations if there's a trade I will be completely shocked I feel like out of everybody on the roster he's probably the last to go at least in my eyes him and SGA might be tied but yeah it's a it's a hard bargain to try to drive me any way there I think he is exactly what the Thunder needs for a franchise that has been so honed in on defensive twos in particular, he can even play at the three due to just his nature. You don't want to give him away, especially when he can shoot the basketball, because 
if you can somehow pair SGA with another offensive mastermind in the draft this year, you still want to have a defensive guy like Lou Dort, who also is an off-the-ball player because he's not going to be playing on the ball. If there's another ball handler that you draft, he's not going to be an on-the-ball guy really at all. But as an off-the-ball player, he's so good, it gives you so much just room to grow with him. And I don't know if he reaches that all-star level, but I think in a team scenario, when you're just looking at the environment of a team, he's one of the most important pieces that you could have as a roster because he improves everybody. And for some people, it's offensively. I think defensively, it means even more when you can kind of help for others and make switches a lot easier, just stuff like that. If you can improve others on the defensive end, I think it means so, so much for a roster, and Lou Dort definitely does that. I also think he's just a momentum shifter. The amount of charges he gets, the loose balls he scrambles after, his use of hands already at an elite level, all defensive team level. I talked about that one really highlighted play from this season where OKC and Los Angeles, the Lakers, they were going down to the wire, and LA, they had the ball in LeBron's hands, smart decision really, and he was on the right baseline, probably 18 feet out, this is a very long two, but Lou Dort is right on him, and he's trying to bait him so hard, he wanted him to try to fling up like a KDS Chris Paul rip move, where you try to catch your shot like under someone's arm, and that would have been Dort's, he would have picked up two free throws, they would have been good on the game. But Lou Dort kept extending his arms, pulling it back, just like a yo-yo or something. And LeBron could never get comfortable. He ended up jacking up a contested two, fell short. I think the Lakers ended up winning that game regardless. But that was still a pivotal part of that game where, you know, if you put anybody else on LeBron, he would have either tried to go in the post or would have baited somebody on a two. Could have even stepped back to the corner and made you pay as well because he is one of the best players to ever touch a basketball. And that is not something that can really be argued at all. But, yeah, I mean, as I said, Lou Dort, he went in being a not a one-dimensional guy, I'd say defensively and then layups, but now he is a three-level scorer offensively and defensively. He is entering his third season going for an all-defensive spot. So major, major jump from him, um, at least offensively, and really both sides. The next guy I want to talk about also took an extreme jump this year, and it's Isaiah Roby. A lot of people like to say that Isaiah was pretty much playing in a rookie season this year because he was drafted last season by the Mavericks. They gave him the most lucrative second-round contract ever and then dumped him off for, I guess, cap space. It was weird because it was for Justin Patton, but then it was also a move to get them kind of under to to sign somebody. I forgot exactly who it was. Might have been Willie Cauley Stein. But whenever they did this, you know, they ditched Roby off to the Thunder. He was kind of hurt a little bit. And a lot of the time, he was playing in the G League system anyways. So he didn't play for the Dallas Mavericks in the NBA. He played for the Texas Legends. And then after that midseason trade, he played three games for the Thunder But then he played a lot with the blue, a little bit more with the blue at least. And in those games, obviously in the NBA, you can't really judge it up. He had three games averaging 3.7 minutes. What is that? Like 11, 12, 
that is that's nothing at all. So you can't say anything about how he played last year. His rookie year in the NBA didn't mean anything, but the G League games kind of do. And he didn't really have a standout game like a Dort did. Dort had a 35 piece really to put him on the map to start out the G League season. Moses Brown to get his contract. He earned it getting 20 and 20 games. Even Deontay Burton, he was dropping 20 points consistently. Isaiah Roby never did that with the blue, but entering the training camp this year, you still couldn't have said much about him because he was dealing with injuries. Anyways, though, I think even at that time, though, he was someone that was seen as a cuttable prospect because just looking at the competition here, you had TJ Leaf, Admiral Schofield, Frank Jackson. Those are three people who are, you know, I think they're a lot more recognizable than Isaiah Roby is at least. And that's a terrible excuse. Um, but I think at the time he kind of came in as an underdog under those people because you go out and sign them, trade for them, whatever it may be, that signals off to me, you're looking to keep them on into the future. And for Schofield, it was a sweet deal. You could have taken him off and just get Vic Krejci for what we gave up, and it still would have made sense. A late second round pick plus a like 2025 or whatever it is, that pick to move up 20 spots was great. You don't even need Schofield. But the Leaf one was a bit interesting because you gave up LeCue, you got a second, and you got Leaf. And when you're looking at the power forward spot, you had Justin Jackson there, but it didn't seem like he would necessarily be the future. TJ Leaf, a couple years younger, makes sense. Isaiah Roby was seen as a three entering the preseason, which is kind of where you were able to say maybe doesn't make it because he did have a, a guy like Josh Hall. You just picked up in the draft. But anyways, when push comes to shove, they had three basketball games to play. And out of TJ Leaf, Admiral Schofield, anyone, really, everyone who got cut. I don't know about Frank Jackson, but those two, and even some of these other guys that you were testing out. Isaiah Roby was one of the biggest bright spots. And off the bench, he might have been the biggest. Now, it was it was between him and Teo Maladone, for sure. But they had a serious connection in the preseason. Whenever they played the San Antonio Spurs, when Teo dropped 20, Poku got in double digits. Isaiah Roby was right there with them, where he was the best screener Teo could have asked for. I don't think you could have drawn someone up better. If you would have put Al Horford in the preseason games with Teo, maybe you're talking a, a different type of Maladone, because he got on the perfect foot due to Roby being that screen man, because whenever they were playing the Spurs, you're playing people like Jakob Pertl, Chesme Metu, uh, I mean... I guess Drew Eubanks might have even played in those games. Those are not fast centers at all. They're all really damn slow. And Metu, he's also kind of slow as well. But I don't even know if he played. But regardless, the guys that they rolled out were extremely slow. Roby had the first step on them every time. So you just had to give a high ball screen to Teo. He'd roll in. Roby never really popped out. He always charged the basket. But it made it so interesting because if there was a switch up top... Teo would just blaze right by the center and get a good driving dish or just a layup in. And if it didn't happen, were they stuck and there needed to be some extra help from the center? Teo would slice in passes and Roby would reap the benefits. And even without that, you could just throw it above 
the big man over his head it drop right into roby he'd still be going at full speed and he could dunk it or lay it up and in that was the biggest breakthrough for me and he went from a guy who really was seen as someone with a good frame seen as a defensive player to okay now he's good defensively but also you see good kind of areas he can grow off of as a pick and roll player and he went in He's 6'8", 230 pounds. That's something that you see in a small forward or power forward, really. Not much of a center. But defensively, he was also clamping up on the other end and salvaging rebounds. So not only is he a defensive guy that you can roll with, but now you're talking he could seriously be a small ball five for this team. And that is when the wheels started turning for me. Whenever I started talking about who would be one of the cuts... Roby was never on my mind past the preseason. Beforehand, yeah, he was a target that it was pretty easy to decipher out. But he earned his stripes game in and game out to the point where he didn't deserve to be cut. And the fact he stayed was beautiful for the roster. Whenever these preseason games were going on, though, a lot of the times, Roby wasn't really seen in the limelight. And people actually like to just dog him on twitter everybody hated him for some reason and i still don't understand why maybe it's because whenever i was watching i was like i was jotting down notes i was looking at him maladone this and that but he was not given credit he did have some really bad passes and turnovers in the preseason which is a big deal for him but outside of that he was a perfect player for the roster and the pick and roll meant so much for him that he needed to stay and he stayed and now everybody loves Isaiah Roby. There's literally a dedicated like fan group to him. So he's well-respected out here. And it's because the versatility that he brings. And I think that's the biggest strength we saw from him this year. Now, he is not somebody like SGA when you're talking pick and roll, pick and roll, Teo when you're talking pick and roll, where they're just all out perfect. He has some rough spots. And particularly, it comes with his kryptonite. He cannot defend a good rebounder. If you put Enos Cancer in front of him, you can't you can't do that. He's going to get 20 rebounds, 10 of them are going to be offensive. He'll destroy you. Maybe if you put Moses Brown too, that might also be uh, an issue of some sorts. But Roby against a traditional big, nothing crazy, can't jump high, you know, doesn't have the best positioning. He can hold up and then offensively, he becomes one of the most you know crucial pieces you can have because in a pick and roll a lot of the times defenses just decided they weren't going to hedge they weren't going to do anything we're going to let this play out naturally we're going to go right at the point guard and make roby chuck up threes now he had a lot of wide open pick and pop threes and he didn't ever really become comfortable there were games where he would just shoot threes instinctively but then there'd be five where he'd hesitate and kick out of a wide open shot. That was something that is a problem for him. And even in doing that, he still shot right around 30% on catch and shoots, shot 29.5 on 1.3 attempts per game. But I think the big deal is just confidence. He never had confidence. And when I compare Isaiah Roby as a three-point shooter, I really look towards a guy like Lou Dort from last year can be very up and down but also doesn't ever seem like he has the confidence to be taking these shots in the first place next season 
if he's able to just shoot three after three, you could see that jump where he goes from a 30 or 29% catch and shoot guy to someone in the mid thirties. And that would make him even better as a five, but you just got to wait and see on that. I guess I do think though, that is something you need to credit him for because he shot 29% overall from three, but in those, he looked a lot better than what the numbers would suggest. Honestly, I think rolling to the basket though was kind of where he made his money off the pick and roll. And then also just going up for offensive rebounds. He averaged 5.6 rebounds a game. And out of those 1.5 came offensively. When he got those boards, he'd go right up at it, looking for free throws or just looking to strictly get some points. When he went up, he almost averaged two free throws a game, which is pretty serious for him, honestly, given, you know, he only took seven attempts a game, but the inside game was definitely something that you saw was legitimate with him. And even slashing to the basket, this is where, even if he doesn't have that pick and pop game, he's great because he'll drive in. He's able to give off no look passes, like a sneaky, good playmaker, but also he could posterize people. If there was someone in his way, He'd go right at them, try to take the hit. There wasn't a foul call, you know, didn't go in most of the time, but he could elevate, posterize, and pick up a foul. That is something that's going to carry over to next season, and that's something you would have never expected. He pretty much was the prototype. He was a clean prototype with an amazing build, NBA build this year. He had a seven foot three inch wingspan. Still does. I don't know why I'm talking past tense there. But yeah, I mean, that body is perfect. For a defensive standpoint, perfect. And he utilized that not just defensively, but also offensively. Defensively, he was still amazing, though. He averaged 0.6 blocks. He had times where he'd get three, four blocks in a game. And then off of steals, he would average 0.9 steals. So he'd still get rough and start picking at some of these bigger guys when they're going in the post. It led to some issues because he averaged 2.7 fouls in 24 minutes. That's pretty bad. But I think right now, this is the year where you try to let off all that steam. He's going to come back more disciplined and he'll be someone you can have as a role player. Sometimes he, especially at the small ball five, did not seem in place. But when you started throwing him at three and four, when you had those elite rebounders, he still filled in fine and he could still rotate on short spurts. But if you don't play him 100% on that center, you should be all right with him. And whenever you're talking this team right now, they need as many of these puzzle pieces as possible. And Isaiah Roby, he's perfect. He's like a corner piece. You know exactly where you need to put him. And there's a lot of different spots you're able to operate with him. Moving on, though, I want to talk about Gabrielle Deck. And this might have been the most hyped up player on the Thunder roster this whole entire season. Maybe SGA and Bay is above him, but Deck would be third for sure because we had a month of just waiting for him to come over, watching tapes, seeing wacky passes he pulled off. And then the day finally came where we got to see 10 games of the season where Deck was able to show off for the team. Overall, he was pretty good number-wise. He averaged 8.4 points, 4 rebounds, and 2.4 assists on 21.2 minutes a game. And in that, he only averaged 0.6 turnovers, which is a very good assist-to-turnover ratio. But 
He played kind of in a weird bench role where a lot of the time in those 10 games, the Thunder were getting blown out and he was playing against the 15th man on the other roster. You can't hit him for that, but he was not playing star competition much. In the games though, he still was very, very impressive as a passer. In like the first or second game, he's driving into the basket. He elevates for a layup and then throws it behind his back to Tony Bradley for a layup. And then he'd have no look passes, baseline cuts. He threw it perfectly. He's one of the better passers on the roster right now. And is he making cooler passes than Poku? Probably not. But the success rate he does it at is much higher than his, much higher than probably Maladone's and some of these other guys on the roster right now. So he's already one of the top three passers on the team, and he only played for like a month on the roster, probably even less than a month. But yeah, that was the main deal with him. That was what he was known for in the Euro League with Real Madrid, comes over and is able to translate that. I think one thing for him that needs to be talked about especially is there's a language barrier between him and the rest of the Thunder teammates and basketball yeah that's a universal language where you kind of know where you need to be at like you can shoot people off everybody knows the motions there but in a game time situation it does hurt a little bit in trying to direct your teammates but he did an amazing job at it and he had the ball he'd, he'd tell people when to clear out he'd call for screens he'd do all that and then he post up but also off the ball, whenever people signaled him where to go, he knew exactly where to go. And even on his own, he had the best spacing in mind. Like if there was an opening in the right corner and someone was trying to work at the top of the key, he'd go to the right corner and just sit there and wait for his time. If the ball came his way, the ball came his way. But the recognition was a major plus for me. And I'm assuming if he's staying for the long term, he's probably going to be learning a little bit of the language. And when that happens... That's going to be big because then he's going to be able to talk to his other teammates and kind of work with all of them to improve their games. So that's a big potential thing with him and just elevating, taking that passing to just another level. But also, you know, as a shooter, it can lead to some openings too on where to get open. With Gabriel Deck, you have to kind of give him shots on a golden platter. He's not going to be able to create a three-point shot on his own he's not fast his dribble moves are okay but you know they're pretty rough like slow dribble moves very powerful on you know when he's bringing like a behind the back move down he pounds that basketball off the hardwood but I mean when you're talking you know how he's gonna get his threes it's so slow he's got a set shot you can be five feet away and make a good closeout he is a catch and shoot player probably only as a three-point guy, and people really weren't guarding him. Overall, he just shot 13.3% from downtown, though, and that's not great. I think that the jumper is really the root cause because the jumper that he has right now, I don't, I don't know how it really works at any level. Maybe, you know, you get him open. He's the driving dish player. If there's someone closing out, he'll just drive in and be a passer because that's what he's extremely good at. I think that's the best route with him. But if he's wide open, has eight feet of room, yeah, he can get off a shot pretty easily. And with Real Madrid, he was making it like 36% of the time. If he can do that for the Thunder, yeah, he's serious. But right now, I mean, that three-point shot was not great. Everywhere else, though, when he wasn't, you know, standstill shooting it, he has a pretty fluid release and it's it's got a pretty 
fast motion to it as well. I think in the post, in particular, he is a lot bigger than some of the other guys he was facing up against. And he's 6'8", 232 pounds. It's disputed whether he's 6'6", or 6'8". Truthfully, I don't know what the correct one is. But he's pretty big, and he was taking on small forwards who are like... 10 pounds lighter than him and he'd get on switches to where he'd have guards point guards just take him in the post bully ball your way in and then all you got to do is take a quick fade away in the mid-range and he perfected that shot he was able to post 16 points in like 12 minutes in one of the games he had this year and he had double digit games really throughout i think the first three competitions for him he set a career high in points he kept getting better kept getting better kept getting better it was because that part of his game really started to go on full display for everybody to watch. And with that, that's something that will work out for him. That turnaround and in that post, he has that strength to where he's going to maneuver somebody and he's got the shot. And if he wants to take it all the way to the paint, he can do that and do just a quick hook or turnaround. Still, he's great. Or just flick up like a, a layup right over them. He has a lot of of areas in the post game that might be his strongest part at least shooting the basketball so that's a deal that i think will just stick around i mean the three is really the variable that can fluctuate post game and passing he's going to be very very good at the position with now when he's taking those post shots that's where you talk about was that competition level that serious and in real madrid i don't really recognize his post game as one of his biggest areas he just kind of adopted it early on and ran with it for the 10 games if he's going up against Kawhi Leonard or whoever these really great defenders are that closeout might be tighter and it might be more of a struggle even getting yourself in a good position but on the bench which is where he's going to play next year he's all right you know going around with the post game that he currently has everywhere else though truthfully I don't really know if you can decipher anything i think defensively and rebound wise he's a pretty solid rebounder um you know he averaged 1.6 out of his four rebounds offensively so it's just like williams where he's sneaking in he's not elevating high to get there but it'll just work his way in and then flick it right back up and in but i think defensively he's still kind of an unsolved puzzle in terms of where his limitations are because the first game he had to play against was zion williams and the immediate first play was like a drive from zion and he was staying with him from start to finish on that drive i think he can take guys that are pretty bulky in size on those speedy guards i don't really know yet i think that you just kind of leave him as like uh ungraded right now might be a great gray area but on the bigger players when you want to take deck to the post, he's a great defender there, and that's how he's able to get some of those rebounds and take things the other way. He had a couple of steals, too, uh, when he was playing. Had eight throughout those 10 games, and a lot of those, some of those came from loose balls, just like Kenrich, just like Lou. You pounce on top of it, and you try going the other way as fast as you can. Some of them might have just came off of errant passes that he's able to kind of just reap the benefits out of but blocking wise i was surprised he didn't even have one block i thought maybe he'd get somewhere there but really contesting was the strong suit and not fouling when he's doing that only averaged 0.9 fouls that is extremely good considering he was playing almost half of the game so there's so many different areas 
that he can be a big part of moving forward as a passer. He's more of that point forward that you throw in on that second bench, the second unit, and you spice it up a little bit, make options a lot better for the other four around him. And then um, just elsewhere too. I think one part that I did kind of gloss over, I'm going to go right back to it before I talk about Josh Hall. It's his finishing game, and he's not athletic. He's not dunking on you. But when he gets into traffic, he is probably the most creative person I've ever seen. And he started going damn near pointing like horizontally when he's going up midair. If he needs to find room around a defender, there's no window. He's going to take it from the side. He's going to outstretch his arm as far as possible. And then he's going to take his body with it to gain as many inches as possible and then just fling it right up. That is something that I have not seen from anyone on the Thunder team, really. And, you know, some of the guys like Diallo or Westbrook, they can change midair. But the deal is, they're already going in with a full head of steam. They will posterize anybody in their way. Gabriel Deck can't do that. But regardless, he still has that trait where midair, he has a whole entire circus show going. He's the ringleader and he's able to sell the tickets. He knows his space whenever he's slashing inside. So be excited for him. He's 26. You got him for the next, I guess, two years after this one on relatively cheap, you know, contract details. It's non-guaranteed, but I'd expect that he's staying on the roster or if he gets moved, I mean, he's still going to be a pretty crucial part on somebody's bench. Somebody that we just don't necessarily know the future of right now is Josh Hall. And this was a player that I was raving about on draft day. I thought that he could have been one of the biggest steals as an undrafted player. I mean, 6'9", point forward, extremely fast, extremely athletic, five-star person who decommitted, just like Kenyon Martin Jr., and as you know with him, he is beasting for the Rockets. And Josh Hall, I think he had the room to do that too. We definitely had the perfect kind of stage for a guy like him to show off, just like we did with everybody else on the roster. But he was hurt. And it went from COVID protocols to, I think, a knee injury. And it just kept going back and forth. Overall this year, though, he only got to play 21 games. And before the bubble, he was playing. They weren't big minutes, though. I'd say out of those 21, maybe five or six were really where you could address him as, you know, what he really is. The other ones are just garbage time. Those minutes don't really matter much to me. The G League was where I expected him to really make his name. I thought that out of himself and Moses Brown, he'd probably be the guy to get the upgraded contract because I thought going in the G League, he's a 6'9 point forward. That is a very lucrative position. You're never going to find that in the G League typically. But he goes in and, I mean, he's hurt. He didn't even play in the G League bubble. And it sucked because, actually, you know what? He played like five minutes and he shot like one for for four. But um, he went in there and that was where he was expected to be the star. When you were talking that roster, you saw it as... Josh Hall, Ty Jerome, Poku, Moses Brown, Yurt Seven, Xavier Simpson, Ryan Woolridge, and uh, Antonius Cleveland, Frazier. I don't know. There's a lot of guys. And even Rob Edwards. That's a stacked team. But in the top three, Josh Hall was definitely expected to be there. And I think for a guy like Antonius Cleveland, who really absorbed those small four minutes, that would have been taken away if Josh Hall was healthy. 
and that would have been the best deal for him because he has so many question marks every part of his game he showed at the high school level that he was great at but you just you don't know because the competition level truthfully three-point shooting he could pull up and hit shots mid-range he'd pull up in two guys faces and dunk it or not dunk it he just hit the hit the mid-range right and then going into transition this dude is a hoop mixtape legend he could do you know a tomahawk he could do windmill dunk between the legs he had that elevation and he still is a freak of nature when it comes to jumping and hammering the basketball down we didn't get to see it a lot with um these last couple of games on the season but it's there and defensively i don't really think i don't see him as a defensive guy i see him as just an offensive player that has a lot of room to grow and as a ball handler can become very deadly now I talked about shooting wise. I mean, he wasn't a great shooter and he averaged, uh, he made 10% of threes this year. That is terrible, but I'm not going to really count that against him, really. I say that because a lot of those jumpers, it's not like he's airballing. He was just very strong on back iron most of the time. He was so close and it just reminded me of like Poku in his first 10 or 10 or so games where he couldn't make a shot but he was always just right there and you were just praying to go in for him that was josh hall in those final 10 and he got it back together for the season finale where he dropped 25 but before that point he couldn't really open that lid up so i'm still very confident in his three i think next season if you play him he's like a 30 percent three-point shooter and then you kind of work into can he go to 32 percent I think that's a part of his game he can deal with, though. Mid-range, same thing. Finishing-wise, he's already at an NBA level. And it's because he's just like Hamidou Diallo, where he'll soar, and then he puts a parachute on, where he's going to hang up there and wait for his defender to fall before he takes up a jumper. So he goes up, not with one hand. He's not looking for finger rolls. He jumps up with both hands on the basketball, takes contact with his off elbow so probably his left and then waits there and then will push it up with his right hand and he's very strong on those layups and that's an issue i think that can be fixed though if he gets softer touch on those layups he's going to be very very good in terms of finishing and then you couple that with his athleticism to dunk on people he has it all and even driving in he is able to get free throws too he averaged 2.1 free throws a game and he shot below five times 4.7 times a game he'd get up there on out of those four like one a game so it's very serious for him and you take out that almost two of those were threes he's not getting fouled on threes about 50 percent of the time he was slashing inside the whistle was being blown that is something that regardless of what happens will still be going his way beyond next season I love him as a project piece. He's only 20 years old. He's turning 21 this summer. But, um, I mean, still at 21, he's got a lot of areas he can fill in and be a bench guy. Now, I don't know how Sam Presti will play this out because he's a no-brainer for a second two-way contract. You can do that. You know, there have been players in the past that have latched onto two two two-ways and then actually get brought up into the roster but I'm still afraid that some mastermind might go out and try to poach him off for absolutely nothing. We're talking a Lou Dort Moses Brown contract where you give him 
pretty much minimum scale money for the next three seasons, four seasons even. I don't think Sam Presti would go for that. I think that these roster spots are so precious to him right now. And yes, you get the draft out of the way first, which helps so much. But I don't know. Out of those 15, it's hard. It's very hard when you're talking Svee and Tony Bradley aren't safe. Is Josh Hall immediately going to walk through the door with one good game under his belt and just take a, a crucial spot? I don't know if he'd be comfortable doing that. But I think there's teams like a Charlotte Hornets. That's the one I've always talked about here. They struck gold on one of the McDaniels brothers. I believe it is Jay. It might be Jalen McDaniels. It also could be Jaden McDaniels. But they picked him up pretty much in the back end of the second round. Yeah, he. Yeah, Jalen McDaniels is the guy. Two years ago, he was selected with the 52nd overall pick. He's 6'9", weighs 200 pounds, has like a 6'11 wingspan. And he's all about the offense. He can drive in. He can shoot the basketball. As a passer, it's not really there, but he's meant to be just a straight-up scorer. And last season, he was a G League player. That's where they wanted him to develop. He only played 16 games. But this year, he was able to move up. He played 47 out of the 72 games, and he averaged 7.4 points and 3.6 rebounds on 19.2 minutes. Shot 33.3% from the uh, three-point line. That is a history where you're going after those lengthy threes or fours just solely based with offensive skill, and then you just want to keep going after them. Josh Hall is an under-the-radar prospect who can be molded just like Jalen McDaniels was for the Charlotte Hornets, and I think that should gauge at least some market for a two-way or even beyond where you're talking handing out a deal. The Charlotte Hornets... They're in a mode right now where with LaMelo Ball, Terry Rozier, Devontae Graham, that three-guard unit helped them. They just got Gordon Hayward. They're going to be looking at playoff spots. So when you're looking at getting talent, they're not going to be competing for the Cunninghams or the, the top-tier prospects anymore. In the East, the worst they're going to do with everybody healthy is like ninth or 10th, right? So I, I think that for the future... They're not going to have many shots to get a player of Josh Hall's nature where there's so much potential. And I mean, he's already a, a hometown kid, really. It's where he's playing high school. That's where he's born. Might as well. I think that's a perfect spot for him. And Oklahoma City will need to make a decision because he's a restricted free agent. And I feel like out of everybody on the roster, he just has no real track record that you can date. It's just got to be that gut feeling as to whether you want to keep him for the future. But that is my evaluation on Hall. All my other three small forwards I talked about in this video. Tomorrow, I'm going to be talking about the four power forwards we have on the roster. And then I'm going to wrap things up with a three-piece with Moses Brown, Tony Bradley, and Al Horford. So tomorrow's episode is going to be spicy. Darius Baisley versus Alexei Pokashevsky got brought up a month ago. I might tap right back into that and see where the status may hold right now. But other than that, though, guys, that is going to do it for this episode. I thank you all for listening, and I will talk to you all next time. See ya.